Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hello listeners, welcome to the latest episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing our discussion of epistemology and spiritual experiences as a way of knowing things or a way of learning the truth about any proposition, I guess. And this section or chapter is called Knowledge is Being. And, you know, it's kind of a cryptic, mysterious title. We'll describe what that means as we go. But to start us out, I'll just read, as usual, a little bit from the chapter. You ask, is this Mormon doxastic, which just means belief-forming, or epistemological practice an adequate basis for claiming knowledge of the truth? That, of course, depends on what is claimed to be the truth that is known. Yes, it is true that you had an experience. However, it is not necessarily a basis for conceptually knowing that the experience is caused, let's say a spiritual experience is caused by God. By having an experience, it doesn't follow that we have conceptual knowledge of what causes our experience. So that's kind of the main problem, saying, you know, we can have spiritual experiences and we can experience them as coming from God, but is that an adequate basis for saying that it actually does? So we know we had an experience, but we can't put a defined finger on if that's actually the case, I guess. At least that's the argument against this. Is that a correct framing? Largely it is, but I would point out that we don't have knowledge of any causes. You never experience a cause per se. What you do is you experience two events related to each other, and then you infer a cause based upon the relationship between the two events. So we never have experience of a cause, ever. So this is a particular case of I have an experience. I experience it in relation to God or a, a vastly powerful or knowledgeable or loving personal presence. But I can't tell you that just because the personal presence was felt at the same time that I am having an experience that is caused by the fact that this preceded that. So a part of what we're looking at is when people have experiences, they say, oh, you know, that was caused by God. Other people say, well, that was indigestion or small potato that I ate later. Or they can say, you know, um, I'm just wired to have it. Remember, we went over that last time. I'm just wired to have experiences like this, and they're just built into me because of evolution. Or you can say, I'm wired to have experience, and this is the way that they look when you look at them and their actual spiritual experiences. So, I mean, when it comes to inferring causes, we're not very good at doing it. And so this is a particular case of what we're not very good at doing. Okay. And, I mean, maybe this is not necessarily part of this discussion, but can't it be multiple of those answers, like not just one of them? Maybe you are genetically predisposed to have those experiences, but maybe that's intended. Right, maybe God built it into us that way. Maybe God lured evolution forward in such a way that that's the way that our biology would result. Those are all open possibilities. I'm going to point out a little bit later when we talk about experiences, that's also an equivocal term. Because the experience that we're talking about is not straightforwardly an experience. I mean, if I experience something through my five senses, then I can talk about it with you because you have similar senses. But when I have a spiritual sense and I have an experience through spiritual senses, it's not quite the same kind of experience because unless you also have had the same experience, you don't really have a common experience on which you can rely to do a comparison. 
And so I would argue that people have what I call pseudo experiences where they mistake some kind of strong emotion or some kind of strong reaction for the knowledge that is imparted or already embedded in us by the spirit that is already a part of us. So I just want to make that kind of a a caveat up front. So you're saying that is a thing that can happen. You're not saying that that's what spiritual experiences are. You're just saying that that's also a possibility and people can confuse those things for spiritual experiences. Yeah, I mean, very often we actually do have experiences and we mistake them for spiritual knowledge, which they're not. I'm going to explain why as we talk. All right, then let me read this. It just kind of talks about what we're going to be defending or talking about. So you say, The consistent claim in the Mormon tradition is that spiritual experiences have more than merely subjective validity. They are thought to give knowledge of the nature of reality. It is claimed that such experiences are insights into the nature of something other than our own psychological states, and hence about realities, as they are in the real world that are in some sense distinct from our own subjectivity. And that's the claim, you say, that's at issue here that we're talking about. Right. So the question is, am I just, you know, is this just telling me something about my own cognitive states or my own physiological states? So, for instance, I have a strong emotional response. Is that telling me more than about the response of my sympathetic nervous system, you know, that I'm pre-programmed to have? And that's all it is. It doesn't have any reality beyond that. Or is there something more related to our experiences of having knowledge and testimony experiences or experiences that people have that, you know, a very loving divine personal being is involved in their experience? You divide this into A and B, and today we're going over A. And A is called the veridicality objection. So I don't know what veridicality means, but I know what verid means, I guess, or valid. Uh, What does, like, or verification, I guess, does veridicality mean something along those lines? Yeah, veridicality means that this is actually about the truth of the way things actually are. So these are claims based upon the nature of truth and arguments based upon the nature of truth. Okay, so you said, It may be argued that it is impossible to know whether a subjective spiritual experience, or even one's own sense experience, is real or just our interpretation that we overlay onto our experience. So that's, I guess, up front, that's the objection in general, saying, well, you can't know whether that's from you or from God, therefore, I don't know what they're saying, but they're just saying you can't trust that experience. Well, it's the matrix or brain in the vat problem. So you have these experiences, but your experience would be identical in all respects, even if you were just a brain in a vat having these sense experiences fed into it. Or if you're in the matrix where you're a body and all this sense experience is just given to you through a computer simulation. Okay, but you've pointed out elsewhere, no one probably really believes they're in the matrix, and if they do, they're generally considered a little unstable psychologically. Well, I've since learned that there actually is a Mormon by the name of Lincoln Cannon who is allied with the transhumanist Mormons who actually does believe such a thing. It's called the simulation theory. Oh, I've, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, and what he believes is that all of life is merely a simulation and we're having these experiences fed to us. The objection works both ways. How could you ever substantiate such a claim? Because there's no possible empirical evidence could possibly work or any kind of sense experience that could possibly work to disprove. In my view, it's a meaningless hypothesis because there's no way you can come up with to either prove or disprove it. You're just asserting it. But I think if you actually believe that you're just a brain in a vat or your mind's in the matrix while your body lies somewhere generating heat, 
that you've got serious problems in assessing reality. That's that's my response because nobody really believes that because we assess our knowledge, at least the knowledge delivered to us through our senses. You know, the difference between conscious experience and like a dream state or unconscious experience. And that is we use all of our background information to assess and we can distinguish between these kind of states and do it rather easily, by the way. And so we're totally aware of the, I'm going to call it the whoop and the wharf, of conscious experience opposed to simulated experience in our own experience. Dreams are simulated. The experience that we have is not. But when you're in a dream, you can't really, you don't really know you're in a dream generally. Well, but when you wake up, you're aware that you were in a dream. That's, that's what, what if you die and then you happen to wake up then? You're like, oh, it was all a dream. But there's no way to talk sensibly about it because it's an empty, meaningless hypothesis. It just isn't helpful, really, in any yeah, way. Well, <laughs> let's say that we are that way, so what? I guess there wouldn't be any problem of evil because we'd never really be in any danger. But what would be the point? I guess we're just all having experiences and for the sake of what we're having experience. But So let me give you an example. I'm in deep bodily pain in my experience. Well, I'm in deep bodily pain whether I'm a brain in the vat or whether I'm in a real body because I'm experiencing pain. And by experiencing pain, that's just what pain is. It's an experience of pain. So it really doesn't matter. I'm still experiencing real pain. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really add anything to the conversations. Like, well, I, I guess that's possible, but what? Yeah, it doesn't really give any benefit. Yeah, it's it's an empty, meaningless hypothesis in my view. Okay, well, moving on here in this verticality objection section, the first section is the certainty of knowledge. And so you give this interesting example about how you can be like, you know, I can sit here and I can think about eating a hamburger and... Now, two minutes ago, or let's say it was two minutes ago, I, I know two minutes ago that I was thinking about eating a hamburger because, you know, it was at least as far as you can assess reality, that's what happened. And then you can say, I'm thinking of eating a hamburger right this moment. Now, I know you say pretty certainly that I'm thinking of eating a hamburger because, you know, it's coming from me. It's not, I don't know if you're saying it's not filtered through your senses or I guess kind of go into what you are getting at with that metaphor. So here's the argument. You really don't know anything unless you're absolutely certain about it, and there are no alternative explanations that are even possible. So this is kind of what I call the logically necessary truth theorem, and that is only truths that are absolutely certain because they're essentially logically necessary can be known to be true. Or something is so certain that I can't even possibly have another explanation for it in any way, which is another way of saying it's logically necessary. But for instance, I come up with what I think is a really certain type of knowledge that we have. I have a memory of, because you brought it up, having thought of a hamburger about a minute and 30 seconds ago. It's a vivid memory for me, and I'm really certain that I had that thought. And our listeners will be too, because that's about when you mentioned it. But it's possible that God created me 30 seconds ago, and he implanted this memory in me, and so I didn't actually have that memory at all. I didn't even exist. He just implanted this in me. This is at least logically possible, I suppose. And there's no way that my experience would be any different at all. And so what appears to be certain to me can be rendered uncertain because I can come up with another alternative. But my response to that is that the mere fact that I come up with alternatives can't count against the certainty of my knowledge. It just can't because it has no pragmatic meaning whatsoever in, in the world. I couldn't possibly realistically doubt it. Well, does that break down at a certain point with memory, at least? I, know, I mean, memory is a bigger issue that we don't want to get in all the way here. But let's take, for example, something that's recent in, in the media. I don't know exactly which relative, but President Nelson has a relative that's being charged with some sort of sexual abuse. But their claim is that 
that is a false memory that has been brought up by the psychologist of the accuser, at least that's the defense that they're putting in the media. And so I've seen some studies as well where you can have false memories as well. I, they did an experiment where they Photoshop people in a photograph that they were never in, and then they show it to them and tell them, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember being there for that photograph. Yeah. And they totally re- – their, their mind, because that's the way your mind works, will just totally make up this memory. And as far as, like, you know, the, the people that remembered couldn't re- distinguish that from an actual memory, and that's just kind of how your mind works. Yeah, but okay. So let's explore that a little bit. I've got a witness on the stand, and I, I, there clearly are such things as false memories. There are clearly hallucinations, and there are people who are wrong about what they're experiencing. I mean, fifty percent of people who have Parkinson's disease have hallucinations where they see things that just aren't there. We human beings are liable to such things, and so our most basic experience isn't something that's certain. But the question is whether it can be reasonably doubted. So if you're the person on the stand and you have this clear memory of having been sexually abused. And they ask you to tell the truth about your memory. All you can do is say, look, I have this vivid memory of having been sexually abused. I can't tell you anything more about it than that. And you're going to have to determine whether I have a reliable memory or whether his explanation that my memory has been concocted by some therapist that I've been visiting. By the way, there were a number of men who were charged with murder and rape. And this would have been back in the mid-90s in Utah. There was a particular therapist who was especially good at creating false memories through her therapeutic practices. She would have them vividly give them a, a, a visual journey through their abuse, and all of a sudden they remembered that their dad did it. And so she was particularly good at creating these kind of false memories. Several men went to prison because of her testimony, and they changed the rules of evidence in the state of Utah about what constitutes an expert precisely to combat this kind of pseudoscience so that she couldn't get on the stand and act as a, an expert witness anymore because everybody suspected that these guys were being railroaded. But we don't have a very good way in our society for distinguishing between false memories and real memories. What we have are memories, and we don't have a good way to distinguish between what is false and what isn't. But we're entitled to rely on our memories unless and until we have very, very good reason to doubt them, is what I would argue. And then you you point out, so at least as far as the hamburger thing goes, or just experience, you say there may be alternative explanations, but to believe such as an explanation renders everything else in our experience unintelligible. So maybe this is the best place to bring this up, but I I watched a video on some different schools of thought on epistemology, and there's kind of a a newer school, like before, I think, what people used for epistemology, again, that's the how we know things, a theory of knowledge, basically. And they're saying, well, for, I think it was like ethics of epistemology, meaning like, when are you justified? So the old school of thought is kind of like, well, there has to be a, a reason for the belief, and then that you have to have a reason for that reason, and then a reason for that reason. But the problem with that is that can go on to infinity, and then you know that there's kind of a paradox in that. And so a newer theory is saying, well, you think of more of your belief system as kind of like a web. An idea or a belief can be justified if it happens to... I, get, I can't. I don't know what the exact word, but if it coheres with our experience and reason, yeah. So it coheres with all these other beliefs that you hold. So it's a it's a whole system of beliefs, and they all cohere with one another. They're saying that's the newer school of thought of whether it's justified. So you could still be wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean you have absolute true knowledge, but at least you're justified in holding it because it's not just saying like the sky is blue and the sky is purple. It's saying the sky is blue, and I I believe you know I don't know I can't come up with a whole web of things about why the sky is blue, but 
Yeah, so what we're saying is it's not just the possibility of some other possible explanation. That's not sufficient to say that I don't have knowledge. What we want to say is that I have this entire noetic structure. Noetic structure is this web of beliefs that you're talking about. And if my entire noetic structure is called into question by doubting that I had this experience, then I'm justified in rejecting that because everything in my experience doesn't make any sense if I doubt it. It may be that at some point there will be such great evidence that I realize my entire noetic structure is screwed up. But until that comes along, I'm I'm more than justified. And we're using justified here in both the Plantagenian sense, in which I'm not violating any epistemic duties that I owe to truth or to some, you know, to be honest with myself. And it is the best explanation. When I'm looking at this, until it's not the best explanation, I'm entitled to hold it. And in a sense, there would need to be overwhelming evidence to require me to change my noetic structure to accommodate it. Okay, and I and I use that, like, I don't know, I was arguing, not arguing, but, well, let's say arguing, sure, having a discussion with someone that no longer believes in the church, and I was trying to say that I can see how you can view the evidence, some points of what we consider fact or a certain light to see the history in or something like that, so that you could come to that conclusion and still be a reasonable person. But I said, you know, you could also be a reasonable person and still believe because the, and it's mostly because of this, because it still makes sense within a system of belief. Now, it's hard to say, how do you compare those two of them? Because like, I believe that, that a reasonable person can be on either side of that. But does that mean that we can just believe whatever we want as long as it coheres with the rest of our world beliefs? Well, it means that we, in fact, do believe things that cohere with the rest of our world beliefs, and we see everything through this web of beliefs. It's not merely a web of beliefs. It's also a filter through which our experience, we make sense of it. And we categorize things based upon the beliefs that we already have. Some beliefs are more fundamental than others. So outside of the web, you might be able to unhinge a few of the crossbars on the web. But if you take down one of the main webs that goes all the way to the very center, the entire web may collapse. So you've got some threads of the web that are much more essential and fundamental than others. What I'm arguing is that the experience of knowing the truth in the Mormon doxastic practice in one's heart has such a fundamental hinge status. Now, a hinge status is the way Wittgenstein spoke about things. We have these basic beliefs on which everything else turns. He called those hinges. And so I happen to believe that, you know, what I see is true until shown differently because I think what I'm seeing is accurately assessed. That's a hinge belief. A lot of what I believe is based upon what I've seen. When I read a book, I don't believe I'm hallucinating a book that I'm making up as I read it, and that the information I'm getting, you know, I always assess what I'm reading, but still I believe that when I'm reading a book, I'm in fact reading a book and not having a hallucination. Okay. Something just dawned on me. So one problem that some people bring up is that, well, you know that there's, there's illusions and there's some things that can trick your mind, and so therefore you can't trust that. But I think what you're saying is like, well, it's sort of like a innocence until proven guilty because, yes, though we can be tricked, you can't go around assuming that everything is actually just an illusion. Just, I mean, I guess you could, but that's not a healthy way to live. And it's a very good analogy, both because we have moral duties not to override basic hinge types of belief or the thread that goes all the way to the center type of belief, and we're not required to do so. I don't breach any intellectual or, or cognitive duties by holding on to my more fundamental hinges or, or center thread beliefs. This is what happens when a person gets converted. They give up one of their hinge beliefs, and it changes the entire way they see the world. And so what they used to know 
and now doesn't have a hinge. <laughs> it's unhinged, I would say. But what I'm going to argue is we're going to get into this. The way that I'm arguing for Mormon epistemology, which is, of course, just a theory of knowledge, is much, much more involved than just this. This is just window dressing for discussing the kinds of arguments that are being made and the kind of requirements that are being established for truth. And I want to unhinge those. I want to unhinge the notion that if you have any possible doubt about something, then you don't know it. That's just not true. It can be knowledge. It might not be certainty, but it's still knowledge. Knowledge doesn't have to be certain. And, you know, a lot of people argue, well, if it's not certain, you can't know that thing. Well, I'm not certain. I'm not hallucinating everything I experience, but I still know I'm not hallucinating. Unless and until I've got really darn good reason to give up the notion that my senses are properly functioning. And we've had this discussion with Reformed epistemology where they were making these kinds of arguments. And so I'm beginning with this, adopting some of the conclusions of Reformed epistemology and saying, yeah, those kind of requirements are not necessary to say that we have knowledge. But I'm still going to argue that knowledge is much different than most people begin believing that it is. Though when I talk about it, I think that they'll say, okay, I see what you're getting at. Or, or more than I see what you're getting at, yeah, I've actually had that. I'm going to call it a quasi-experience because I don't want to call it an experience. I have had that knowledge within me, and so I recognize what he's talking about. Okay, well, let's see if we can get there with our discussion then. So let's read this. So this is what the Mormon view of the certainty of knowledge is. It says, if an experience is such that it acts as the basic lens through which all experience is filtered and by which the meaning of experience is organized as meaningful within our entire noetic structure, then the experience cannot be reasonably doubted. So that's basically what we talked about. So that is the view I will be defending here. I will argue, well, I guess you already said all this, but you say, I will argue that the experience of knowing the truth already in one's heart has such a fundamental hinge status in Mormon epistemic practices of knowing. So is this a given that everybody experiences spiritual experience as already knowing it in their heart? Or, I mean... Yeah, my view is, and it's kind of a radical view, but I think that the, when we go through it, you'll see the bases. And that is that our hearts already know. By heart, I don't mean the, the organ that pumps blood. I mean, at our core, we already know. It's already given in our very being. What do we know? We'll be talking about that as we go along. I don't want to just answer because it needs construction around it to hold up the, the structure. So let's build that structure. So the second point here is what you call the Kantian assumption, and that's referring to the philosopher Immanuel Kant. The Kantian assumption is an argument against the possibility of knowledge. And what it says is we never experience things as they are in and of themselves. We only experience them as they are for us. So what we experience is only phenomenal. That is, it's a phenomenon of our experience. We don't experience the thing in and of itself, which Kant called a noumenon. And so we really can't know the thing because by the time we experience it, it's already passed through the entire web of beliefs that we have. It's already been categorized, reinterpreted, and it's been taken from what it is. So the object that I'm seeing right now, I'm looking at a Buzz Lightyear toy. When I see the Buzz Lightyear toy and I feel it, I'm not taking the Buzz Lightyear toy in me to be a part of me so that I have Buzz Lightyear constitutive of me. All it really is is a bunch of plastic in different colors, but I've given it a name, a Buzz Lightyear because that's my category. And I'm experiencing it in a certain way. But I can't really know this Buzz Lightyear toy as it is in and of itself. I only know it as it is for me based upon my experience of seeing the movie, playing with the toy, and, and so forth, and, and all the good feelings I have about astronauts. 
So I don't experience this thing as it is. I only experience it as it is for me, which is already modified from what it is to what it isn't. And this is the Kantian assumption that when we experience the world, we never experience it in and of itself, and we transform it into something very different than it actually is so that we can actually have a conscious experience of it. That's where you begin. You give an example of a flower, but we can use the Buzz Lightyear example. It'll be more fun. So let's say this is how science would explain that you are seeing and understanding the Buzz Lightyear toy. So number one, let's say, assume this Buzz Lightyear exists as a thing in and of itself in the world, even when you're not looking at it. And then two, light is reflected off of this Buzz Lightyear toy, and the light travels to the retina of your eye, and it acts on the retina cells. The retinal cells transform that light data into electromagnetic energy, and the electrochemical message is transmitted through chemical reactions along the retinal nerve to the visual cortex, and then the visual cortex relays information to the motor cortex, the limbic system, and prefrontal lobe, among other brain systems. And then somehow, I don't think science is quite clear on this, the brain brings the process of transferring this chemical message contained in the millions of neurons in the brain into a unified conscious experience. And you are consciously aware of seeing the Buzz Lightyear as a unified object. So you went through all that just to show what? That that's, it has to go through all this filtering process. So you can't have, like you said, the Buzz Lightyear in you or experience it how it experiences itself, let's say. I'm experiencing a brain-induced reinterpretation of what there is. Certainly Buzz Lightyear is not an electrochemical message. Certainly the Buzz Lightyear in some sense can't just be electrochemical neurons firing in my brain. It can't be the case. And we have this magic black box where not only am I having the experience, because dogs and, and snails and things can have things travel from a, a kind of visual experience, but this 6A, I assume, only exists in a developed form for humans. 6A is the big black box. Somehow the brain brings the process of transferring this chemical message contained in the neurons of my brain to a unified conscious experience. It's in this movement that Kant claims that what we are are creative beings where we take and organize our experience into the wholeness that doesn't exist in the data themselves. So I have all this data coming into me, all these photons hitting my retina. I can touch the thing and have you know electrochemical responses at the tip of my finger. But the bottom line is that these electrochemical responses and the photons hitting my retina and so forth are not Buzz Lightyear, as he is in and of himself. At least I assume that's the case because I don't know anything about it. But then I have this magic input from me in which I create the experience of consciousness. And I create the experience of consciousness based upon who I am, what my experience is. I bring all this to bear in this creative act. And this is basically my theory of mind, so I'm just going to put a plug in here for the Kantian theory of emergent mind, where we give rise to our consciousness by an act of creatively categorizing and putting together the manifold of the data that come to us that don't have a lot of meaning into a meaningfully unified conscious experience. But that's all of what's involved in experiencing something. Well, then you, you add a few, you say also on top of that, once it's just past the brain functions, you also add in additional filters onto it, like your past experience of that thing, like you remember seeing the movie, probably Toy Story, and then your language and your culture, like you said, what astronauts mean in this culture and what it meant in the story, and then how your culture interprets that. So those are all also filters. I've got all these filters that I'm filtering what's out there and the way I'm experiencing it. And there's no guarantee that the way that my senses put things together electrochemically or photoelectrically has any relation to the thing as it is in actuality in and of itself. 
So philosophers like to say, for instance, this Buzz Lightyear has some green and purple and white, and all of those colors really don't exist in the atoms that are that it makes up Buzz Lightyear. Doesn't exist in the molecules, and you know it has to do with the light frequency that is hitting my retina. But it's an interaction between the light frequency and the way my retina interprets the data. So the colors are really something I create, <laughs> okay? And there may not be any real color in the world as it is. And so they were called secondary properties by a number of philosophers because they're not basic properties. So colors don't really exist in this sense. So our experience is basically a simulated experience through our brains. Interesting. The very thing you said you didn't believe in, but there you go. <laughs> Well, no, it is. I mean, we are meaning-creating machines. Oh, you're saying we're creating the simulation. Right. We're creating the simulation. But, and I'm going to add this, this is an imperative for my view of truth. The best clue to us that we're onto something is that reality hasn't wiped us out of existence. We have been pragmatically able to exist interacting with reality. And so it's working for us. And so, you know, what I want to say is that the ultimate test of truth is, does it work? When we interact with it, is it something that we can survive? Is it something that works for us to create you know, results that we're looking for? We basically turn it into the scientific method where I make a prediction and say, gee, if I do this, this will happen. And I can reliably rely upon that because it happens every time I do it. And if it doesn't happen every time I do it, I look for a variable to explain why there's a difference. So you know, when we get right down to it, it's this kind of pragmatic experimental method that we ultimately use to determine whether our sense experiences have any relation to reality. Okay. And then having said all that, then the title of this next section is might be a little jarring. So you say, the disappearance of the nominal and phenomenal distinction in Mormon epistemic experiences. And so now we're somehow arguing for the disappearance of that subjectivity, or I don't even know if it's subjectivity. Well, what, what I'm claiming is that in sense experience, this distinction between the noumena, the thing is, it is in and of itself that we never really experience, and the thing as experienced, the phenomena, is a necessary feature of sense experience. I argue that in spiritual experience, however, this distinction does not exist, that what we are experiencing is a noumena. Now, by definition, you can't experience a noumena because experience arises from the senses, and that's where I wanted to qualify this term. I don't really experience a noumena. I encounter it in a way that is so intimate to me that it includes me within it. In fact, it's given in the very basic fact that I am who I am or that I am in being myself. So let me tell the story how I get here. So I'm going to go back to Kant's philosophy a bit and explain a basic distinction that is based upon this same kind of a distinction. Kant was a libertarian. He believed that we have libertarian free will. That is, we could genuinely do otherwise than we do at any moment with any choice that we have. However, he believed that the phenomenal world was in fact deterministic, but he believed that freedom is inconsistent with determinism, but he believed we're free. And so this created a real, you know, creates a real puzzle for Kantian scholars. And I've wrestled with this at great length because I consider myself a Kantian scholar. And this is the same journey that Kierkegaard traveled to get his theory of epistemology, which I'm kind of recreating here. So this is it. So how does Kant reconcile the fact that it appears to us that the world is deterministic, but in fact we have libertarian free will, and we have to have libertarian free will for Kant in order to act in a morally significant way, because for him, ought implies can. That means if I ought to do something, I can do it, but if it's deterministically impossible for me to do it, and it always is if determinism is true, 
it's determined what I will do and it's not possible for me to make a choice, then I'm not free. Here's how we reconcile that. So when I experience the phenomenal world as being deterministic, I'm experiencing a mere appearance. I'm experiencing something not the way it really is, but it's the way I have to infer it to be to make sense of the world sensibly. However, I am not a phenomenon. Let me repeat that. I am not a mere phenomenon. The one thing I know and that I have to posit in order to make any sense at all of anything is that I actually exist or I couldn't have any experiences at all. That makes me a noumenon. I actually am in the real world as a thing in and of itself. And I sense myself, and sense here is equivocal because it's not one of the five senses. I know myself in being, choosing freely in my direct experience, again, experience in quotation marks, because I choose. And it's not the experience of my freedom that makes me free. It's the fact that I know I'm making choices. And the fact of making choices entails that I'm free in myself. Not only that, I'm making morally significant choices, and I know the the moral significance of the choices I'm making. And it's given in what I am in existence. So in choosing, I'm acting in the world as a noumenon. And it couldn't be possibly doubted that I'm acting as a noumenon, because that's the only way it could possibly exist. So Kant argues that as a being acting in the world, I am necessarily a phenomenon, and I know myself as a phenomenon, but... If I talk about it, if I bring it back into the world of speech so that I'm trying to make sense of it through speech acts, I can't make sense of it because I've now converted it from being a noumenon, which is the only thing I can experience subjectively in myself, to making it a phenomenon that you and I can talk about because speech and language and so forth exist only in the phenomenal world. Every every word is a phenomenon. Every word is part of what we hear and experience and have this overlay of all these filters on to make sense of it within our web of beliefs. And we have, you know, what does the word mean? And we can talk about that at some length. But the bottom line is that acting in the world in this way, I am a noumenon, and I know that I'm a noumenon. I know that I'm acting freely in this sense. And what I'm going to argue is that the Mormon docs ascetic practice is precisely this. We know in our very beings that we know, because it's our very nature as beings of the kind that we are to have knowledge. We can hide the knowledge from ourselves by refusing to exist in reality. So you get this kind of talk by Kierkegaard that the way you come to truth is through subjectively immersing yourself more deeply into existence. Okay, What he means by that is we are a noumenon in the world knowing because it's given in the very facticity of our being itself that we have this knowledge of what we are in relation to God because he is given in us as well. The minute I try to tell you about it, when I turn it into a speech act, so that I'm trying to give you some knowledge of what I experienced, I can't convey to you what I know. Because the nature of knowledge is so subjective and totally subjective, it's like nailing jello to a wall. I can't do it. I can't even begin to do it. So if I try to convey to you my spiritual knowledge, I necessarily fail. I can't convey this knowledge to you. A, because it's, it's experiential in the sense that I've explained. It's given in the facticity of our being in the world. And B, Because when I speak, I'm necessarily including the phenomenal world in everything that I do and transform it from being a noumenon into something that can't be knowledge, and that's a phenomenal world. And so what is spiritual experience? Spiritual experience must be the most authentic, deeply existential act of existence that we do, and it's an act of existence. And when I talk about an act of existing, from moment to moment, I am a thing in the world in and of itself, and so I'm a noumenon. And so this is the structure 
you know, I, I've got this basic skeleton that you're going to hang everything on. That's the basic skeleton. Okay. Well, while I'm thinking about it, let me ask this question. So, for example, missionaries, when they go out and they teach people the first discussion, they give them a Book of Mormon. Generally, at least, I don't know how they do it now, but in, when I was on my mission, then we turn to Moroni, right? And we say, look, you don't have to take our word for it. You can have this experience for yourself. You need to go and pray and ask God if what we're saying to you is true. And so let's say someone has a successful go at that. So when they're, they kneel down and they pray and they have some sort of spiritual experience, I would say, at least based on experience of the people perhaps many years after that experience and some that were a little confused by what it was that they were supposed to be getting knowledge about, I would say, and this is from my experience too, maybe, maybe there's kind of this general feeling of, hey, I felt something here. I don't know. It didn't necessarily give me some sort of, it wasn't like a confirmation of a specific fact or it wasn't like a, a truth claim that was being acknowledged to me, but I felt this presence, this good, this truth and light, this spirit, if you will, this, th this is of God somehow. I don't know what it means. It doesn't mean that, I mean, I'm not claiming it's not, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that the missionaries told you was exactly true because, you know, missionaries might bungle it or they might give you the wrong impression and you interpret it a certain way. So when you're praying, you might even be having something else in mind. But what I'm seeing spiritual experiences as just some sort of thing touching your very soul that you can't comprehend necessarily with your brain, but you just know that you're having some sort of experience. And so people go forward with faith. And like, you know, most people that get converted, I think, don't even know exactly what it is. They think that they're agreeing to, but they have this experience and then they go forward in faith. But I guess you're saying the faith is after that experience generally. The experience is some sort of motivator or what is it? What we do, we don't we don't say, look, I'm going to give a deductive argument to prove this to you. I'm not going to give you an inductive argument based on evidence to prove it to you. We say the same kind of things that the apostles said in the Gospel of John. The apostles, Andrew and, and his brothers, they see Jesus, and they're converted to Jesus. And they go to their families and say, hey, we found the Messiah. And they say, well, how do you know? They say, well, come see for yourself. You know, come and see. They're not saying, you know, we want you just to take a look at, at Jesus's body and watch him walk around. They're saying, we want you to come and actually use insight, not outsight, not use your eyes. We want you to use your soul to see who Jesus is. And you use this very term yourself. You know, this is deep in your soul. And look at how you were at a loss for words to even explain it, because you can't explain it. This is not one of the five senses. It's not an experience of something in the world. It's an experience of oneself as already knowing. And we bring this, this knowing to consciousness by realizing that, my gosh, I know this. This is a part of who I am already. This is given, in my case, it was like, this is just a part of eternal reality. I've always known this. It's a part of what I am. And so a lot of people have this kind of, of experience of like coming home, they say, or like finding oneself again or coming to oneself or knowing who one really truly is. These kinds of, of statements are indicative of the fact that it's given in our very being, in, in our existential reality in the world, to be a noumenon, in addition to having phenomenal experiences. So when you're saying, I've already known, you've already known what, though? Because I'm trying to, I want to be wary while we're doing the rest of this discussion of people that, for example, well, let's just say this. So the church has framed certain stories and things in a certain way that were very simplistic, and people say that they, you know, they go and they have a spiritual experience, if you will, but then they say it's based on the factuality, it's the, the spirit confirming to me 
this particular story. And then some people now in our current day and age, due to the internet and then just learning things, they go and they learn the stories a little more complicated. And they learn, and some people may have hung their hat on a certain aspect of a story. And so now they're saying, I have to doubt that spiritual experience because the thing that I think that I was getting confirmed to me turns out not to exactly be like, maybe it's not not true, but it's a lot more complicated and not the way I thought about it. So the confirmation I got was based on this. And now I have this information, so I'm in this, you know, cognitive dissonant state. But that's why I was saying... It's a misunderstanding of the kind of knowledge at issue. We'll discuss it. Let me address your issue, because you've already made the argument. I thought I knew something, and it turned out, on further evidence, not to be true. But, and also that I experienced a spiritual experience along with that, and so I'm just saying some people doubt that spiritual... or I don't know, they're, they're conflating the two as being dependent on one another, but I'm trying to say... I think we can make the argument that it was not necessarily that specific set of ideas that they were getting experienced. They were just experiencing the presence of the Spirit. I think they're experiencing more than that. They're experiencing a deep sense of resonating with the truth that they've been taught. But let me put this into perspective. I mean, I had my most basic and profound spiritual experience that led me on this journey when I was 14 years old. I've written a lot about it. You know, I was 14 years of age, and the way I saw the world then is completely different than the way I see the world now. And the kinds of things that I would have affirmed as true at that time in my life, I can't affirm as true now. And I would affirm different things because I don't think like a 14-year-old anymore, and I'm not required to, to have a testimony. So this is the fact. When we experience something, we experience it given where we are. And when we place the experience within the noetic structure that we have at the time, if we think that everything in our noetic structure is being confirmed, then we're mistaken. However, when we have experiences that confirm, we must allow our noetic structure, this web of beliefs that we have, to grow and change and be modified by further knowledge as we experience the world. But again, the knowledge that we have, that, that for instance, God is in this. So when I have a spiritual experience, what I'm realizing is God is in the Book of Mormon, for instance. A lot of people reading the Book of Mormon, they have this deep sense of burning. They call it a burning in the bosom, but everybody knows that that's a misnomer. What it is is a deep sense of truth that one finds already in one's being, just resonating with one's entire being. They use phrases like, I know in every fiber of my being, because it's given in our very being. What it doesn't mean is that every thought or idea that we have is being confirmed. It doesn't mean that everything that we think is true is necessarily true. What it means is, I'm at home with what I'm now reading. I'm at home with the fact that the Book of Mormon comes from God. That doesn't mean that I know where the Book of Mormon occurred and what its geography is. It doesn't mean that I know what the original language of the text is. It doesn't even know that I know how tall Nephi was. Does it mean that I know that Nephi existed? If I have a deep sense of that in my being and relationship with Nephi, the answer is yes. But if I don't, maybe it's just confirmed to me that the Book of Mormon is from God, and that's all I need to know. I mean, people have different kinds of knowledge about this. But as we'll discuss further next time, what we know isn't an entire set of propositional truths. What we know is that this is grounded in my experience and my relationship with who I am deeply in the truth of reality in the world, and my relationship with God because I experienced God's presence in it. I know God. He was present with me. He's given in my very being. I'm so interrelated with God that he's a part of my very numinal being in the world. And so what we're saying is that this intelligence, and we'll get into a further theological structure next time, 
But we're not saying that the noetic structure that we have is everything that we believe is confirmed. That's a misunderstanding. We'll also get into next time, uh, you know, the strongest argument against this is, is one that you've already brought up. So the argument that nobody could ever possibly know via religious experiences is this. There are a lot of very intelligent, sensitive people who once affirmed that they believe something who no longer do. They once affirmed that they knew something to be true, and now they doubt it and can't say that they know that, right? And so can it be doubted? The answer is yes. Lots of people do it. Can it be denied? Yes. Lots of people do it. But there's a movement. And it's this kind of movement, because this kind of knowledge is deeply experiential, not in the sense that I experience it through a sense, but in the sense that it's given in my experience of being in the world as an existential being, and given that it includes necessarily a divine-human relationship, it's like the difference between a person who was once in a fulfilling, meaningful marriage and a person who's divorced and remembers having had a relationship once but no longer feels the love. So a person could say, I was once in love. And then they say, you know what? I'm no longer in love. It doesn't mean they weren't in love. It means that they've forgotten how to love or that they've fallen out of love. It's the same thing with this knowledge. The mere fact that they begin to doubt it later, in other words, they translate and change their being in the world to a phenomenal reality. The, minute, the kind of movements they make change the nature of the truth that they know into a mere phenomenal question like, oh, well, I've got to go find some evidence for my beliefs. Or, oh. I've now got to start doubting my experience in order to make sense of it or whatever. And so what we do is we take and convert this being in the world, this immersing ourselves into existence, to use Kierkegaard's phrase. They transfer it and, and change it into a mere phenomenal experience, which we don't know anything about at all. And so it's easy, and it's easy to make this transfer as well and to forget that so how deeply this is given in our being when we're not authentically experiencing ourselves in our, you know, in, in our numinal facticity in the world. We're going to get to this, but I would say this is an experience through which you see, not an experience that creates the content of what you see. Well, that's what I wanted to get to now. So you have this analogy of a, like a camera lens or the cornea of your eye. And so you'd probably explain it better, but you say the experience or the, the spiritual, whatever it is that you're having happen to you or is coming from within you, you know, from God or whatever, it's the lens or the eye through which you see, and then you see the experience through that as opposed to that being the thing in and of itself. This way of seeing the world is logically prior to seeing the world because it determines what we can see and what we do in fact see. It's like I'm an existing individual in the world prior to any conceptual categories or experiences of the world. And the lens in this analogy is this. When I experience something through the lens of my eye. I never experience the lens of my eye by seeing. I'm seeing through it. I'm not looking at it. I'm seeing through it. But it makes seeing at all possible. And so it orients everything that I experience through my eyes to make sense of it. So what I'm saying is I can't make sense of my visual experience without a cornea, right? But it's given in my experience. It's given in, in the facticity of seeing. I can't see without one. But I'm not seeing it. I'm not experiencing it directly. I can't say, oh, now I'm, have a, I'm having an experience of seeing my cornea, because we don't. But in reality, we would have to, right? Everything passes through our cornea. It's the same thing with this experience. Once we have this experience, it reorients everything in experience. So that logically, it is logically prior to the kind of experiences at all that we have. It determines, in a sense, what counts as evidence for us. It determines, in a sense, what is included within our consciousness. And it determines, in a sense, what we find persuasive. That's why there's such a divide in the way that 
people who have had these kinds of experiences see the world very differently than those who haven't. We call this a conversion experience. A conversion is, I saw the world one way, I'm completely changed now. I'm changed in my very being, but not only am I changed in my very being, the entire world looks different. I see it in a different way. Everything about my experience is converted. And that's because the facticity of our being, like the lens of the eye through which we see, is logically given prior to any experience we could possibly have. And it's a necessary condition of the experience at all, and it orients and determines what will be included within our experience. And so what I'm saying is that a testimony experience, the experience of being deeply grounded in reality and being, and having it burn within us so that we know in every fiber of our being, this is given in the facticity of the experience itself. Now, we may mistake that what we see through this experience, therefore, must be true. That's not the case. What we see through the experience, we may be able to see some things more clearly, and it may dim some things for us that otherwise we would see differently. But the fact is, is that it allows us to see things that otherwise can't be seen by those who don't have this kind of a lens to see through. And so it gives us eyes to see, is one of the ways that the scriptures puts it. We can see a spiritual reality that others don't have any access to. This is just basic for spiritual believers. And you don't have to be Mormon to have this kind of experience. I've spoken with a lot of non-Mormons who have this kind of experience. Yeah, we'll get into that next time, probably more. But... Yeah, we, we will. You know, this begins to explain why the noetic structure isn't something that's confirmed. It's something that is reoriented by the experience. And so we see things with insight. In other words, I, gee, I never saw it that way before. I now have a way of looking at this that seems more authentic and more deeply grounded in reality to me than I've ever experienced it before. Does that mean I fully understood it? No. I mean, let me just take it like evolution, okay? I, when I had my testimony experience, I, I was a thorough disbeliever in evolution because I'd been taught about creation and so forth. But when I reoriented everything, I now saw things through a lens that included evolution as a part of the explanatory framework because I couldn't make sense of anything without it. Yeah, so just this question. So I, I think recently, and maybe it's more among my generation or like millennials i'm not i'm probably at the top part of millennials but anyway i think they popularly are trying to see a shift away from some of the things that some people say and i think you've already addressed how we can get away from the problems that they see with it so let's say for example they get up and they see people in testimony meeting or something and they're saying i know this for a fact i i know this truth proposition i know this truth claim I know this about, you know, the church and its history and this, but, and, or let's take it to the extreme. Like, some people may be thinking, like, I, I know America is the best country in the whole world, uh, the Republican Party is the right party, and I know that Halloween's of the devil, or, at, you know, in the church past, some people may have been like, I, I know in every fiber of my being that Adam is God, or that I know for every fiber of my being that within the gospel that the priesthood should only be given to white men. And so, you know, people in the upcoming generation are like, well, those things have turned out either to be wrong or strongly biased in one way, and then these people are claiming that they know this, they know that. I guess maybe it's not totally related to where I want to go, but I want to kind of go here. And so there, there's a strong negative association with people using the word, I know, and they want to soften that and make it okay for people to just get up there and be like, you know what, obviously I don't know. I can sympathize with this. Like, I don't know for a fact that Jesus was the high Christology view as opposed to some other view or something. I don't know that Joseph Smith was, in fact, 
or that he, you know, everything he said was of God was of God, I'm sure, something. But what I get you saying is that I have some sort of confirmation, like you said, that just God is in it, but the content of whatever I'm interpreting that to mean may be mistaken. But I was, the trend that people want to get away from is, is that knowing language. And do you see that as threatening somehow to the Mormon tradition? Is it okay for Mormons to get up there or just to say to other people, like, I don't know, but I believe or I hope or I have faith that this is true, but obviously I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to know until I go meet God whether or not he believe was. Him. Yeah, let me respond this way. So if we use the word know, we ought to use it knowingly. Okay, and I know that sounds like doublespeak, but it isn't. The word know goes in quotation marks because it's equivocal. I don't know propositional truths to be true. When I say I know the church is true, I'm not saying that I know that everything the church teaches is true, because I honestly don't believe that. I'm not saying that I know that every single statement in the Book of Mormon is true, because even when I say that I know the Book of Mormon is true, that's not what I'm asserting. What I'm asserting is something like this. I know in the sense that the truth of this book is deeply grounded in my being. Another way of saying it would be, I resonate at the deepest level of my being with what I'm reading here in the book. It's given in who and what I am, and it's given me insight to see things that I otherwise couldn't see. It has enlightened my mind. It has given me the ability to see that I didn't have previously. And I know, therefore, that it's a good seed because it grows and expands my understanding. So Alma 32 is a great place to go to talk about the kind of things that we actually know. Because the strange thing is, you know, Alma says we begin with faith and we have this experience. And he says, well, do you know? And he qualifies it and says, well, you know in that thing, but you still don't have knowledge. And it's a surprising answer, actually. But it's an appropriately qualified type of nuance to the very kind of theory that I'm proposing here. You know in that thing, you know that you have resonated at the deepest level of your, to the truth of what's being presented to you. It doesn't mean you know the entire truth of anything. But the minute you open your mouth to bear testimony, remember you're converting this thing from the noumenal reality of your knowledge, the subjective, to a phenomenal expression of it. And you can't convey the knowledge. You can't express it. This is the kind of paradox that Kierkegaard recognized and why he engaged in what's called the indirect discourse. He never addressed the truth directly because you can't do so. He addressed it indirectly by adopting different pseudonyms and different stances in life to say, look, if you adopt this stance in life, this is what you see in life. And so we have to be very nuanced in the way that we address knowledge claims. Now, I don't hesitate to use the word I know, but I'm very careful in the way I use the word. When I say I know the church is true, it's translatable into something like this. At the deepest level of my being, I encounter God in this church, and I know that he's in it, and that I belong here. This is my home. Now, not everybody's going to have that experience. It's also translatable into, I can't translate this for you. The only way you can know anything about this at all is to experience it for yourself, and I use the word experience in quotation. Because remember, the minute we begin to use human language to describe it, we've converted it to the phenomenal world, and you can't talk about it in those terms. And it's not paradoxical, because paradox is something where there are two truths, and I'm trying to affirm both truths that appear to be inconsistent. It's not a paradox. This is a genuine conundrum of the nature of truth in the noetic experiences that we have, the testimony experiences that we have. Now, when I say something is, is subjective, I mean the fact that you've had this experience is not evidence for me that it's true. The fact that you come to me and you say, I've had this testimony experience, 
I know it's true. That's not my knowledge. That's yours. And if I believe you're a good person, I may have reason to believe that you experienced something. But I have no reason to even try to jump to what it is. But the invitation is what's important. You too can know. I'm inviting you to have your own experience. I'm inviting you to immerse yourself more deeply into your own existence and your most deeply sincere, authentic being in the world to get in touch with what matters most to you, what is deepest in you in reality, and what you resonate most deeply with. That's what we're saying in a sense. If we said it like that, nobody had ever joined the church. But that's, I believe, what we're actually saying. And so we're inviting people to actually reorient all of their experience by becoming grounded so that this is the first principle in experience. And that's why we've got these arguments here that I'm addressing, and, and I address these to show this experience is basic. You can't go beyond it. You can't make more sense of it. I can't explain the experience because the experience is always more basic than any explanation I give of it. I can't prove the experience beyond my own subjective knowledge of it because to try to do so is to suggest that what's more basic is the proof that I have and not the experience itself. And it's not even experience. It's this deep being in reality. It's the ultimate existentialism. And if you want to talk about it, I'll argue that Mormonism is the ultimate existentialism theologically. We'll get into that next time when we talk about the theological grounding for this type of an experience and belief. So what we're talking about, oftentimes, this, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Well, I stop myself and I ask myself, what would my knowledge be like if I saw it without assuming that what I experienced, I actually experienced, or what I experienced was true? What would the world look like if I weren't me? Which is, of course, a logically impossible thing to do, but then they proceed to not be themselves. It's the ultimate self-deception, but those are the arguments that we're addressing next. And then let me ask you one more potential question, and this might actually be more conversation for next time. I don't know because I haven't read that one yet. But what if, let's say it's logically possible this, I don't personally believe it, but let's say this may be the case. What if the Book of Mormon is in fact not what it claims to be? It's not historical. Do you think a person could still have these spiritual experiences with it and be testifying and still be somewhat right about, not right, but you know, what they say can still be authentic? So let's just say, you know, they have this idea that it's one thing, but it, let's say it it turned out that Joseph Smith not necessarily made it up, but he it didn't come from gold plates. It didn't come from an ancient civilization. Well, in a sense, I've got a theory that says essentially that there's a lot of it that is dependent on Joseph Smith and wasn't provided anciently. Let me make a few obvious assertions. The Book of Mormon didn't exist in English anciently. It didn't exist in the expression in which it now exists anciently. It didn't exist within the kind of Christian noetic framework that is presented in anciently, okay? Those, those are part of our culture and the cultural accretions that we have. And the Book of Mormon had to be the way it was or it couldn't have spoken to the people that it was addressed to in the world that Joseph Smith lived in. And so I have this theory of the Book of Mormon that coheres with this view and with my entire theology, as a matter of fact, in the Book of Mormon as an expansion of an ancient document. Now, let me say this about that. Of course, it's logically possible that that's the case. It's logically possible that we have a deep spiritual response to something that isn't true in factual history, but that there's something about it that still touches us deeply. I mean, I would suggest that I've had that experience with fictional works, some of them. I mean, Les Miserables comes to mind. I can't tell you the kind of deep existential response that I had to things in Les Miserables when I read it in French, unabridged. Not about the Battle of Waterloo, but about the deep goodness of what it is to live a good life, like Jean Valjean. 
but it would be passing strange to me that I'm having an experience of deeply of the deep authenticity and truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and given in my being. But this characters that it's talking about and what it says they said and the central figure in it, Jesus Christ, visits the Americas and that didn't occur. I have a very difficult time fitting that into my noetic structure because it's just so disconsonant. It doesn't make sense of my experience to me, and it doesn't make sense of my deep groundedness and being to me to frame it that way. Let me acknowledge that it's possible, but let me say that it has this kind of cognitive discontinuity for me that I've expressed. Well, that's what some people are running into when they have their faith crises. Well, I, I've also presented evidence to support the history of City of the Book of Mormon that I think is pretty compelling. So. I have phenomenal reasons for believing that in addition to numerous reasons. Okay, but when people are resonating with the Book of Mormon, back to what you were saying before, it's not necessarily with the truth claims about it, but it's with the teachings, maybe, or it's with what message is being conveyed in it, or the truths within it, not necessarily the truth of it. Let me give an example. I mean, you're reading the Old Testament, and you're reading the part where God commands the Israelites to go in and kill every living creature. Now... Not only do I not believe God commands such things, I think that was a cultural accretion, but I find that morally repulsive. So it'd be very hard for me to find God in that because of my prior beliefs. But let's say that somebody actually does resonate with that. It's deep in their being. I would suggest that what they're resonating to is not the truth of the Mosaic Law. What they're responding to is the deep truth that God is involved in the production of these works. I mean, you, you may see it differently, and you're free to do so. That, that at least is how I explain it. No, I, that's exactly what I was trying to get. It's like, like, no, I do believe the Book of Mormon is what it says it is. I'm trying to figure out what it is that people are saying they're coming to know when you say that they're having this deep experience. And I'm just saying I don't think it can necessarily be these factual claims or even what they think that they're getting some sort of knowledge of specifically. I think it's more basic than that, like you said. It's just that there's something true here that's eternally true. There's a resonating with you know, what's really true and real about me that's, you know, I can't say what it's doing, but it, it's like when you two objects you bring together and then they both kind of vibrate because they're at this, the right frequency. It's just, it's kind of like that. Yeah, it is kind of like that. And so we struggle to express this kind of a thing and all we can really say is, well, give it a shot. You know, come and see, take a look for yourself. Because that's what we do as missionaries. We don't say, trust me in my great biblical knowledge or I'm such a great biblical scholar, I have the correct interpretation of every scripture for you so that I can deliver the truth to you. I think a lot of evangelicals do it that way, but I just think that's silly. We don't say, I have overwhelming evidence of you. I'm such a great scientist. I can prove this to you. And doing that would be silly as well. But when we invite people to come and see for themselves, it seems to me that we're doing precisely what a Christian is asked to do. We're not asked to know or convince somebody. And I'm not giving a knockdown argument that's so compelling you have to accept it. This is a matter of free choice. And you have to be free to reject it if you choose to do so. This is your opportunity to see through this lens. So what I want to emphasize again is this is what we see the world through rather than seeing the world itself. The experience is not the world itself. It's not thinking of itself. It's what we see things through. It's what makes sense of the world for us. It's what gives meaning to anything that we experience for us. And so the notion of a hinge belief, you know, on which all other beliefs turn, or the notion of, you know, I have to have this lens to focus anything so that it has meaning for me in my experience. Those are the kinds of analogies that we're bound to use to explain this. And I've already said, you know, I think the strongest argument against this is one that I, I think I've got a very good explanation for why it occurs. 
But when it occurs, there's no real remedy because I think it rises out of self-deception, walking away from oneself grounded in being in reality, and essentially asking a question that's, that from a logically impossible stance, you know, what would the world be like if I weren't in it? And so, you know, it's these kinds of stances, I think, that necessarily lead to losing one's testimony because they're absurd kinds of activities to engage in. But I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with that that's exactly how they explain their coming to doubt that they know anything and what they went through. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.